0: So the title of this talk is Songs of Realization, or the Poetry of Awakening. And the reason I wanna talk about this is, one is I have a love, deep, long love of poetry, and a deep, long interest in uh, awakening and realization, and what that means, particularly as it's Understood from a Buddhist perspective, but of course, realization crosses, uh, cuts across boundaries of tradition and religion. So, what I'm going to do, do in this in this talk is uh, draw on a lot of those different ways the truth is explored through poetry or poetic uh, teachings, poetic utterances as a way of pointing to uh, or naming or disc- naming the unnameable, describing the indescribable. So the Buddha and great awakened sages after him and teachers from many other traditions will say that, Uh, awakening liberation realization is beyond the capacity of words to describe it because of the nature of language is dualistic. it's separating, it's this this and that. And so in the nature of that experience or the understanding of freedom is beyond Dualisms beyond separation, beyond the idea of me and you as being separate. So, poetry is uh, a way that's used to point, and the Buddha and people since and prior have been pointing the finger, as they say in Zen, the finger pointing at the moon but to make sure you realize that the teaching is not the finger, it's the moon, right? And we often get lost in the finger. Where well, it's pointing this way, no, it's pointing that way. No, it's a big finger, no, it's a little finger. It's just a direction. These words are pointers, they're all pointers. Every teaching, every great inspired uh, text, they're pointers to experience, to reality, to the truth, which the words take us in the direction of. So one of the reasons why um, the the poetic form is often used is because the uh, a lot of uh, deeper wisdom and understanding is paradoxical. It's the it's the uh, it's the ability to hold paradox is one of the. Um, could say, markers of uh, deep understanding. And I'll explore, I'll go into what that means in a little bit. T.S. Eliot put it uh, in a now well-known expression, a form of paradox, when he said, we shall not cease from our exploration, and that the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. We shall never cease from our exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive exactly where we started and to know the place for the first time. So in the path, so it's, it's even the metaphor of the path is dualistic in the sense of I'm here going somewhere in space and time, but we don't ever go anywhere except here and nothing ever happens but in the present moment. You can't actually leave the present moment. And even if you fly to Tasmania, your experience is always right here. Have you noticed that? (laughs) It doesn't feel like you're hurtling along at 650 miles an hour at 40,000 feet. You're just right here and and life moves past you, through. Just like when we drive or walk. The center of experience is here. So we're not actually going anywhere. It's like being in a movie. So the language is poetic. It's myth, sometimes it's a drawing on myth, symbolism, metaphor, simile. So the Buddha used a lot of similes and metaphor for his teaching, as do many other teachers. So Rumi is a wonderful example of that. So uh, like this, a few lines, he says, inside this new love die, your way begins on the other side. And then just listen to how he uses metaphor uh, to speak to an aspect of our experience. Become the sky, become the sky. Take an ax to the prison wall and escape. Take an axe to the prison wall, escape, walk out s- like someone suddenly born into colour. So, these teachings are not speaking to the rational mind. Well, wait a minute. I'm not in prison. I don't have an axe, and that seems very destructive to bust the wall out. <laughs> and I've got 20/20 vision, and you know I'm not colorblind. What's what's you know? No, it's it's. But it speaks to our heart. It speaks to something that we can touch in us. We can sense, oh, what what would it be like to become the sky? To walk out like someone suddenly born into color means we see for the first time exactly what um, uh, T.S. Eliot's pointing to. We're seeing for the first time, we're seeing colors, as if uh, like a blind man learning to see, the Buddha talked about it. You're covered with a thick cloud, slide out the side, die and be quiet. And he's not meaning die like die, he's meaning... Well, let me read on, die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. So we're letting go of the part of the mind that cannot rest in stillness. That's what's being invited to be released. So we touch that when we meditate. So T.S. Eliot, said genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. I think is a very beautiful way of understanding what poetry is. Genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. So you, so a lot of what you may hear tonight will go in and your mind might not get it rationally or intellectually, but there's still some response of like, oh yeah, that kind of sounds true, even though if someone asked me what that meant, I, didn't know, I have no idea what, what to say. Yeah, so there's something paradoxical about it that we can get it, you know, it's why we we go to teachings and we seek out teachers and spiritual centers because it's this it's something speaking to us But we might not be able to rationalize like when I walked into my first Buddhist center and I saw people walking around with a certain ease and grace and there was a certain light in their eye I didn't know what that was but it was communicating something before I understood it. And so we all have that experience. Maybe you go out into the woods and you have a sublime, transcendent, peaceful, connected day in the forest, and you might not be able to describe to anybody what that was, but you're moved. You you sense that your skin is not really the boundary of your body much more permeable than that. So another metaphor from Gendon Rinpoche, who says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Now I don't believe any of you have elephants resting in front of your fireplace at home, unless you've got a big house. But maybe the great awakened elephant is sitting right in the seat that you're in, that we overlook. We overlook because we think our experience should be something different than it is. I notice that tendency in my mind in the meditation, the mind that the mind. It's it's in in Buddhism. It's really it's it's a form of bhava, which is becoming, which is looking for something looking to become, looking for the meditation or your experience to become something other than it is. That's that's a profound movement we have in our human experience to look beyond what's just here. So everything is, so we overlook it and it becomes unsatisfying because we think it should be something different than it is, right? Does that sound familiar in your meditation? Oh, I should be quiet, I should be more still, I should be happier, I should be blissful, I should be peaceful, you know. All our ideas, well, what's actually here? Oh, it's, you know, it's like this. And when we drop into that, then all those experiences arise, can arise. But when we're looking for it to be other than it is, it's a sure guarantee that those won't arise. Because in that moment, what, we, what we're caught in is the state of wanting, is the state of longing, the state of grasping the state of looking outside of what's just here. So I remember um, many years ago when I first went to India, it was in the early 90s, and um, I met my first Vipassana teacher in Bodhgaya, and he was uh, he, he was, t- he uses a lot of pointers to the truth, to awakening to imminence to the the imminence of the possibility of that realization in the moment. And I didn't fully understand what he was saying, but I was completely lit up by that possibility and lit up by the someone who had tasted that for themselves. Because prior to that I'd been studying the tradition where people were pointing to it but were somewhat lost in the pointing and not actually in the lived experience of it. And then I met uh, an Advaita Vedanta teacher, Punjaji, or Papaji, see um, who was uh, very awake and a beautiful teacher, powerful, profound teachings and transmission. And uh, spent many months with him over the years, and uh, his teaching and his presence had a profound impact on my understanding and my path and my development. And what was interesting is after I spent a lot of time with him and then came back to England at that time, and I started reading a lot of Buddhist texts and poetry and stuff that prior to had not made a single bit of sense because it was speaking in the language of paradox. And after studying with him, it all made sense, not to my rational mind, or even to my rational mind. It actually made sense, um, and so so a lot of the teachings that you may come across in Buddhism, especially if you go to the original texts and some of the great masters like Dogen Zen teacher, Padmasambhava from the Tibetan tradition, or Milarepa. Or they're speaking to uh, a very deep part of our nature. This is a poem from uh, Zen teacher and poet and crazy wisdom, wild guy Ikkyu. He writes, and what is mind and how is it recognized? If I clearly draw it in ink, the sound of breeze drifting through the pines is all that is seen. And what is mind and how is it recognized? If I clearly draw it in ink, it's the sound of breezes drifting through pines is all that is seen. And the mind goes, what? (laughs) What's up with that? (laughs) So just keep, you know, uh, if if the mind is 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 resisting, just notice that, and we'll 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 continue. <laughs> so a classic form of this uh, paradoxical teaching um, mm, was m- you could say was more developed in later schools of Buddhism, particularly in the Mahayana, and the most uh, beloved of those texts is the Heart Sutra, which is chanted in many, many traditions, every day in monasteries, and temples. And um, one of the things that is being pointed to is this paradox of there is something and there is nothing at the same time. There is form and there is emptiness of the form, which means The form isn't quite as it seems to be. So an example of that would be this. Do a little uh, DIY home improvement project here. What is this? Wood table, anything else surface, hmm? sure. surface. Space. space, where's the space between, between okay, there's space, uh-huh between the, fibers of between the fibers, right, if we were seeing molecularly, it would be mostly space ninety nine percent space, but for our intents and purposes, on a relative reality it's it's a wooden table, it's form, right. I love that I have this table for this exercise. Ow! (laughs) That's called pain, in case you're wondering. Now what is it? It's an artifact. What else? It's a piece of wood. Is it a table? It has potential to be a table in its current form. If we define table as that which is an object which we can place things upon, say, for one definition of table, it's no longer serving its functions of table. It's a, it's actually just a bunch of pieces of wood, right? Which which when we assemble in a certain form, we then call it table, right? This is this is this is relative reality. We we all we all conventional conventional reality. Conventionally, know this is a table, right? But if I um, you know I'm going to Burning Man, and I want to wear a headdress, (laughs) then it becomes a hat or a coat stand, right? (laughs) Or Mara, or I could be a stag, you know. So this is. uh, This is conventional reality. And that could be true with anything in this phenomenal world, right? If we take your car, if we did this to your car, right, which you wouldn't be very happy about if we did, (laughs) and we say, well, what's that? You say, it's my car. And then we spend the next 12 hours dismantling it, and there's a door and a wheel and some, you know, pistons and whatever is in car's seats, and it's just a bunch of metal, right? So... Uh, meditative awareness and inquiry is to, it partly is to mm, deconstruct our fix, fixing of things. The mind fixates and solidifies and concretizes those things and take things, takes things that we take to be real that are actually not as real as we think they are, like this table suddenly became a bunch of wood. Just like we may, I spent the weekend teaching a workshop on the inner critic. And um, people you know, were sharing their different stories of their judgments and the way the critic assails them and, and, and judges them. And without consciousness, it feels very real and very solid and very true, right? Unless it's examined. When we examine the nature of the critic with a meditative awareness, It's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of concepts that we give a certain validity to. They don't actually have inherent truth to them, except the one to which we give it. So in the Heart Sutra, I'll just quote a little bit from it. The Bodhisattva of compassion uh, speaks thus form, physical form, body, table, building, form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. Form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. Feelings, thoughts, choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. All things are empty, empty of substantial nature. When we analyze them, when we really take them apart, we see that there's no essence of table or me or anything separate from what we create, what we add to the experience. Breathe. So this is another way, I I know, I'll get to this. Uh, I have another way of framing that, but I'll I'll wait for a moment. Now let me just read a little more, because it's such a beautiful text. I used to chant this every day. Basically, this text is going through very classical Buddhist teachings from the early teachings and seeing uh, and, and exploring their empty nature, their insubstantial nature. So, in emptiness, no form, no feelings, no thought, no choice. Nor is there consciousness. No eye, e- no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No color, sound, smell, taste, touch, or what the mind takes hold of. Nor even act of sensing. So. What you, the first reading is, well, they've just taken away my whole experience. They've taken away my senses, the sense experience, my body. What does that mean there's no I.e. ear, nose, tongue, body, mind? Look, I've got a nose. What does that mean there's no nose? No hearing. I can, I can hear. So it's pointing to the way that we reify those experience, that we uh, make them into a something. That we solidify that which is actually continually just arising and conditioned and flowing and we fix it. We fix it into this cluster of senses and sense organs into a person called me. But who me is, is just a fluctuation of condi- conditions. Like form and pass and form and pass. Don't take my word for it. Just keep looking at your experience. So the Buddha, when he first, uh, 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 so it said, came out of his realization He uttered some words to himself um, that um, helped him articulate his experience. And they go like this. And you may have heard these words before. And so he's using the metaphor of the house builder to point to the structure of the ego. So... um, as a way of understanding that process, he said, Seeking but not finding the builder of this house, <coughs> sorrowful indeed is birth and rebirth again and again. O oh house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build the house no longer. All your rafters have been broken, your ridgepole shattered. My mind has attained to unconditioned freedom, achieved as the end of craving. So the Buddha is saying, I see the ego in all of its forms, in all the ways that it creates trouble, in all the ways that it creates a sense of self and illusion and separation and fear and greed and anxiety. And he's seen it so deeply that it can no longer uh, obscure his mind. And so he he obtains an unconditioned freedom, which is a freedom that's beyond conditions, which means whether he's happy or sad, or cold or hungry, there's freedom in that. So this is from the poet Juan Ramón Jiménez, who put it this way. I am not I, I am the one, I am this one, walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget the one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk where I am not, the one who will remain standing when I die. I am not I. So again, it's pointing. You see the way they're pointing? It's not saying you're not this or not that, but this, this, we can sense something beyond our usual experience. You with me? <laughs> okay. So um, there's some lovely uh, texts um, from the original text uh, where the uh, disciples of the Buddha, the monks and the nuns, um, after. Uh, Seems funny to just put it in this way, but after uh, attaining certain level of realization, they would um, also have these poetic stanzas or utterances about their realization, and they were some of them were, were written down. So this is from um, a couple of nuns. Uh, one is called Punya, and it's a very long. I, I'm not going to read. I'm only going to read a, a one st- or two stanzas, but it's a very long stanza of how she 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 penetrated. The truth of change and how that was her doorway to liberation. No, this no. That, sorry, this is the net, Sorry, this is Amber Pali and she writes: "Black was my hair, the color of bees, and curled at the tips. With age, it looks like coarse hemp. Such was this physical heap, now a house with its plaster all fallen off." The truth of the speaker's, the truth of the truth speaker's words does not change. Reference to the Buddha. This is from Punya. Punya, grown full with good qualities like the moon on the 15th day, with discernment a total fullness burst the mass of darkness. With discernment a total fullness burst the mass of darkness. So different ways people try to speak to uh, their own liberation, which is a very difficult thing to do because it's hard to put into words that which is unnameable. So th- throughout the Buddhist tradition, particularly in the Zen, the Chan traditions of China, um, the the sense of of pointing to uh, realization, awakening, freedom uh, uh, is very much found in a lot of poetry and a lot of teachings, uh, and in, including the, the Koan tradition, which is mostly from the Rinzai tradition. That uh statements or riddles that point to reality, but in a very cryptic way that forced the mind to let go of its habitual boxed way of thinking about things. So this is one of my favorite nature poems. A lot of these great Zen and Chan teachers lived in the mountains in the forests and um, so a lot of the inspiration for th- what came from the natural world. And so this is from Li Po um, who uh, has this beautiful short poem that I love, and it, it goes, um, so you have to imagine he's sitting up in the mountains, meditating quietly for a long time, and this experience comes to him. The birds have vanished into the sky, and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. And so it is. So maybe you know that experience. You're walking in the woods on Mount Tam, And the last remaining emails have faded away. (laughs) We hiked together, my (laughs) shaggy dog and me, (laughs) until only the dog remains, right? We, we, We probably all tasted that experience. I go floating in my surfboard at Stinson Beach. And my life fades away, and my s- surfboard fades away, and it's just floating in the waves, right? The sense of I dissolves for a moment, for a precious, sacred second. And it's, and we go, ah, oh, finally, <laughs> peace. Right? My mind has shut up, and my life has stopped bugging me, and I'm just here, and I'm not complaining, I'm just relaxed into the moment. Ah, just this right? and then we cherish those moments because they're very precious they're quite rare for most of us, and they they give us a they again they point to they point to the possibility, oh, what would it be like to live like that without the burden of my story, my mind, my (laughs) critic, my projects, my whatever, where I become, or my resistance to experience. Maybe you taste that in meditation. You're sitting and suddenly all time drops away you know, before you're looking at your watch every two minutes, going, "God, is it over? Is it over?" and suddenly you slip into a state of presence and peace and ease and contentment. And then time—there's no time. You drop into the timeless. There's no reference point for time, or or the sense of the body drops away, and you drop into the f- into formlessness. Right now, if you close your eyes, when you all close our eyes, I'll be a magician, I'll make your body disappear. Your body's just disappeared. At least your image and your idea and your concept of the body. And if you look to your direct experience, what's here? There's probably some tingling sensations. Yeah, Movement of sensations of movement, this torso like an accordion taking in breath, exhaling, a sense of contact with the ground. But there's no arms, there's no legs. It's like the wonderful book um, Oliver Sacks wrote on having no head, right? How do you know you have a head? What's your direct experience? There's not much direct experience you can you, you know you can you can sort of assume it's there because you can touch it right? you look in the mirror and it's hopefully there. But actually if what's your direct ex- your direct experience is I don't have a head. I have a body, but I don't have a I don't see a head I don't hear a head. So these things are pointers. So this is another point. This is from Hakwin's Song of Meditation, Mm -hmm. beloved text. He says, all beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. That means you, by the way, just know that. All beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. It is like water and ice. Apart from water, no ice. Outside living beings, no Buddhas. Not knowing it is near, they seek it afar. What a pity. It is like one in the water who cries out for thirst. It is like a child from a rich house who has strayed away from the poor. And he closes a very long, beautiful text with this very place, the lotus paradise, this very body, the Buddha. All beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. So this is the, one of the paradoxes of being human is we have Buddha nature. We didn't have Buddha nature; we we wouldn't be able to awaken. The essence of Buddha nature is awakening. And if we didn't have that capacity, we wouldn't, it wouldn't we wouldn't have access. So we all possess Buddha nature. We, you know, from a certain perspective, we just don't know it. So when l- different levels of realization awakening happen, and often experienced understanding is, it was already here all, all the time. I thought it was somewhere else. I thought it was some in some experience. I thought it was gonna be some amazing thing. And it's just like something peels away. And we see it's always been here. Where else would it be? On a mountaintop, in a cave? That's the paradox. So these teachings, these practices of mindfulness, of awareness, of being in the present moment and meeting and accepting and allowing what is here in the moment in your experience as it is, is such a beautiful doorway to that. It's in a way, it's a little like we are, in Dogen, great Zen teacher, would talk about uh, zazen and sitting meditation as almost like practicing being Buddha practicing awakeness You know, and the meditation may be one of the places we're most awake, most present hopefully not all the time, sometimes So there's the there's the declarations of uh, uh, awakening and pointing to that, and then there's the the whole realm of the heart that's pointed to, in various teachings across the tradition. So one of the most beautiful expressions of that is uh, in the Buddhist tradition is the um, the birthing and the outflowing of bodhicitta bodhicitta is the aspiration to relieve the suffering of others ultimately for all beings but initially for others for ourselves and for others and it's a beautiful human quality we all have this to some degree in we have innate capacity to care to be kind to be uh helpful to be warm right we all have Part of that, and uh, we can practice that, and we can develop that, just like the Dalai Lama or Paramacharya and the many other beautiful teachers who've really spent a lifetime cultivating this quality. And you can see by being around someone like Dalai Lama how amazing it is when someone's practiced cultivating kindness for, you know, seventy years. Guess what they like. They're really kind, <laughs> and incredibly compassionate, and incredibly heartful and understanding, and incredibly attuned and sensitive and brilliant. And you want to be around them. So, and uh, as, as I said, the, the the pinnacle of that expression is this is this expression of the of the bodhisattva and the, and the bodhisattva vow, which is where we really dedicate our lives to doing the most we can to help other people. And there are many, many beautiful expressions of people doing this in all walks of life, no matter what religion or what practice they have. So this is from um, a beautiful text called the Avatara which means the guide to the bodhisattva's way of life. And if you're interested in this orientation in life, it's one of the most beautiful spiritual texts, I think, ever written. It's written by Shantideva um, in the um, like the eighth century in northern India. And so I'll just quote a few stanzas and you've, you get a sense of it. He says, may I be a god for those who are protectorless, Protectless a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for land, a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles and for every being the abundant cow like the great earth and other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of beings may I be the ground and vessel of their lives. <coughs> and on it goes for hundreds of beautiful stanzas. So it gets the heart gets expressed as a compassion. That the heart gets expressed in form of Uh, uh, in the relationship to to the beloved, like in the poetry of Rumi and Hafez and Kabir. I want to read a couple of those just to give that another evocative quality of how awakening manifests through the heart. The beloved is inside you and also inside me. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We are all struggling. None of us has gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out further and further. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself and others fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that world. I hear bells ringing that no one is shaking. Inside love, there is more joy than we know. Rain pours down, though the sky is clear of clouds. There are whole rivers of light. The universe is shot through in all parts by a single love. How hard it is to feel all that joy in our bodies. This is from Rumi. There are love stories and there are obliteration into love. You've been walking the ocean's edge, holding up your robes to keep them dry. You must dive naked under and deeper, under a thousand times deeper. Open completely, let your spirit ear listen to this green dome's passionate murmur. Let the cords of your robe be untied and shiver in this new love beyond all above and below. So what I love about this form of poetry is it's it's pointing, but it's pointing through the heart door. And so it's a different way of access, of pointing to that which can't be described. And before I end, I wanted to speak a little to um, uh, a, div- a different flavor of this kind of um, uh, the way the way understanding is, is comes through poetry, but it's through the ordinary, through the mundane, through the through the humanness of our lives. So a lot of, a lot of th- what I've been pointing to is is more the our transcendent nature or to that uh, aspect of our experience that is free, that is uh, unbound in a certain way. But our realization also has to come through our ordinary life and our ordinary day to day activities. Otherwise, what's the point? So, um, so I want to share some, some, some readings that point to that, uh, embracing of that. This is from T.S. Eliot. If you aren't in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? You're on in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? That's a great line. So, uh, one of my favorite poets is, a, as I mentioned, a Japanese poet called Ikkyo. And Ikkyo was a um, well known Zen teacher and became an abbot of the most famous temple in Kyoto, which at the time was the center and was for a long time center of Zen Buddhism in Japan. And then got fed up with all the um, religious bureaucracy and hypocrisy that he saw in in the tradition, which happens in any tradition. And so he renounced it and became kind of like a, Kind of a roaming poet, and uh, and 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 uh, left the the celibate renunciate life and became a uh, layperson. And so he had a lot of interesting things to say about embracing this worldly life and not creating another duality of spirituality and awakenings just found in robes or in monasteries or in temples, but it's found everywhere. So, I'll read a few poems. The lotus flower is not stained by the mud, by the mud. The lotus flower is not stained by the mud. This dewdrop form, alone just as it is, manifests the real body of truth. This dewdrop form, alone just as it is, manifests the real body of truth. Same as what Hakuin's saying. Without human beings, no Buddhas. So then he goes on to write, it is easy to enter the world of the Buddha, but difficult to enter the world of the devil. Easy to enter the world of the Buddha, difficult to enter the world of the devil. Difficult to maintain awareness in the fullness of our humanness, you could say. Follow the rule of celibacy blindly, and you are no more than an ass. Break it and you are only human. Follow the rule of celibacy blindly and you are no more than an ass. Break it and you are only human. The narrow path of asceticism is not for me. My mind runs in the opposite direction. It is easy to be glib about Zen. I'll just keep my mouth shut and rely on love making all day long. So and he has a lot of poems about, he had a a love affair with a woman, uh, blind woman who he wrote many, many beautiful poems about. And it's lovely to read his poetry that's really about someone who lived a very, you know, somewhat refined ascetic life, who saw the limitation of that form as there is limitation with any form However wonderful it is, no form no form has it. There's no, no particular way or thing or practice or temple or monastery or tradition has it. It's not about that. They're all fingers pointing to the moon and we keep getting lost in the fingers. Hafez puts it this way, fear is the cheapest room in the house, I'd like to see you in better living conditions. Right, so we all hang out in these places that aren't so great. Here's another one from Hafez. What do sad people have in common? It seems that they've all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. <laughs> So that's what we do. <laughs> so this is from uh, contemporary poet Anne Sexton, and it's called "Welcome Morning." And I like this poem because it speaks to how to how to you know welcome and see and embrace the sacred in our everyday. There is joy in all. In the hair I brush each morning, in the cannon towel newly washed that I rub my body with, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the kettle that heats my coffee each morning, in the spoon and the chair that cry, hello there, Anne, each morning, in the Godhead of the table that I set my silver plate cup upon each morning. All this is sacred right here in my pea greenhouse each morning. And I mean though often forget to give thanks, to faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing as the holy birds at the kitchen window peck into their marriage of seeds. So while I think about it, while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for this laughter of the morning, lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared, I've heard, dies young. Welcome morning welcome everything so you know we ha- we all have the opportunity to see the sacred in everything every moment and you know mostly we go on autopilot and we go about our day in the chores and work and busyness and and then at times the the sacred the mystery whatever whatever name we give to it emptiness silence Bursts through, you know, we see a shaft of sunlight coming down, you know, across the Golden Gate Bridge or something We hear some bird chorus at dawn and We just look down at our boiled egg and feel complete Love (laughs) 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 Or gratitude before we demolish it Appreciation. So I think I'll close with something from Walt Whitman. who I think is a lovely um, uh, example of someone who um, uh, lives so fully in life and at the same time has pointing to the same mystical dimensions that these great teachings are pointing to. And, of course, not all it makes sense to our mind, but that's okay. We just keep reading. Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and the sun and the millions of suns left. They come to me days and nights and go from me again, but they are not the me myself. Apart from the pulling and hauling stands what I am. Stands amused, amused, complacent, compassionating, idle, unitary. Looks down, is erect, bends an arm on an impalpable certain rest. Looks with its side-curved head, curious what will come next. Both in and out of the game, I am both in and out of the game, watching and wondering at it. Backward I see in my own days where I sweated through fog with linguists and contenders. I have no mockings or arguments. I witness and wait, both in and out of the game, both in this life and of it, watching and wondering at it. Has anyone supposed it lucky to be born? I hasten to inform them. It is just as lucky to die, and I know it. I pass death with the dying and birth and with the new washed babe and not contained between my hat and my boots. I am not earth. I am not an earth, nor an adjunct of earth. I am the mate and companion of people, all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. They don't. They do not know how immortal, but I know. And on it goes for many, many, many pages, <laughs> as you know. So, um, uh, what else? How to close? So as I um, used to sit listening to teachings and reciting texts that uh, made no sense to my rational mind, um, I invite you to um, receive these teachings in the spirit in which they were written and the spirit in which they were offered, which are... um, they poems, yeah they are pointers, and to just let whatever words ideas sort of just settle um, invite the mind that's trying to figure it out and that was weird and that was right and that was wrong and invite the part of the mind just to take a little vacation and just just let the the you know the, the whatever teachings or whatever words or whatever spirit got touched to let that be uh let it inform you and um you know if you're curious about some of these texts you can these these talks are recorded you can listen to them on org. download them um and uh jack's book um the teachings of the buddha is is has at the back section a lot of these teachings in them uh these kind of these pointing teachings uh, that are wonderful to just recite you know to be it's like being in the presence of a waterfall you just let the the negative ions wash over you and they have they they have their effect and maybe you know 15 years later and you're you know on a sailboat in Alaska and suddenly that word comes and you go aha and now I know what that means and it often happens like that you know, it's often great to take a line of text that's really profound and memorize it. And you just, and the psyche is an amazing, mysterious thing. It just, it percolates and does its work in its own time. And that's why realization is not up to us. You know, we we, we, we create the conditions. So like meditation is a condition. Um, you know, as Suri Das once said, um, uh, enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes you more accident prone. <laughs> so we do things like be out in nature, be in community, be in meditation that allows, our, you, know, allows the, you know, it's like planting a so- seeds in fertile soil. You know. We cultivate the soil. So when that moment of aha comes, it's really received deeply and transforms our whole being. Okay, pleasure to be with you tonight, enjoy, take care, see you soon, thank you. you. So um, I have one request, please turn right when you leave Spirit Rock onto Francis Drake, even if you want to turn left, turn right and then go through Woodig, uh, thank you, and uh, take the chairs, some of the chairs back. Uh, Thank you for listening.